Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you something a little different. With part one of a two-part podcast series on interchangeable biosimilars in inflammatory diseases. Today, we'll highlight a discussion with a panel of experts moderated by Dr. Ryan Humschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute. Our expert panel includes Dr. Jonathan Kay, the Timothy S. and Elaine L. Peterson Chair in Rheumatology, Professor of Medicine of Population Health and Quantitative Health Sciences, Director of Clinical Research in Rheumatology, and the Executive Co-Director of the MD-PhD Program at UMass Chan Medical School, UMass Memorial Medical. Dr. Maya Kale, Assistant Professor at the Susan and Leonard Feinstein IBD Center and in the Dr. Henry D. Janowitz Division of Gastroenterology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and Dr. Kimberly Chen, Senior Health Plan Executive, Expertise in Medicare and Dual Medicaid Commercial Market. The topics of conversation for today's podcast include the clinical manifestation of inflammatory diseases, comorbid conditions, the potential for biosimilars to treat the diseases, the role of biologics and biosimilars in disease management, and more. Now, as we first start this discussion today, I think it would be really important to start and provide an overview of the clinical, economic, and humanistic burden of inflammatory conditions in the United States. Dr. Kale, if we can start with you, could you give an overview of the clinical manifestation of these inflammatory diseases, really focusing on the prevalence, some of the clinical impact, and even risk factors that we should be considering? Yeah, of course. Thank you for the question. So we know that immune-mediated inflammatory diseases have a prevalence of about 5 to 7% in the United States. And you know, the type of immune-mediated inflammatory diseases can be grouped together based on the primary system that's involved. So in gastroenterology, which is, of course, my specialty and the area that I know the most about, we can group them according to the inflammatory bowel diseases. This includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Um, in rheumatology, Dr. K's specialty, of course, we have the spondyloarthropathies, and these include the ankylosing spondylitis, um, psoriatic arthritis, and then in addition to that, rheumatoid arthritis. There's also immune-mediated inflammatory diseases in dermatology. These are psoriasis and hydroadenitis superativa. And of course, the clinical manifestations vary for all of these diseases according to the systems that are involved. Um, there's no one risk factor for all of these diseases, of course, because they are across a wide spectrum of um, organ systems. But we do think that there might be a genetic predisposition to many of these conditions. Um, across the board, we think that tobacco use might be associated as a risk factor with some of these conditions, obesity, age. But truly, we haven't figured out the precise risk factors for all of them. But again, we do know that there, perhaps in more cases than not, there is a genetic predisposition. Well, that was an excellent overview. And obviously, there's a lot to consider. And when we even think about that, there's also the consideration of comorbid diseases. We know that these comorbid diseases are on the rise, causing considerations for payers and providers. And uniquely, there's becoming more literature around metabolic disease and other things that we've really got to you know, think about when we're treating the patient as a whole. So Dr. K, maybe I can transition to you. What are some of the comorbid conditions that are typically seen in patients with inflammatory disease? Well, inflammatory diseases tend to increase the risk for cardiovascular disease. Atherosclerosis accelerates with chronic inflammation. And malignancies, lymphoma, also is increased in, 
its incidence in patients with inflammatory diseases, typically with more active inflammation. So for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, with the most active rheumatoid arthritis, the risk of lymphoma is markedly increased. However, with control of disease, those comorbid uh, conditions, the risk is decreased. In rheumatoid arthritis, interstitial lung disease is a major comorbidity that occurs in about 7% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Again, uh, treated the same way as rheumatoid arthritis with anti-inflammatory therapy. There are also comorbidities such as depression, uh, which can occur as a reactive depression, uh, but we're not really sure as to what the pathophysiology of depression associated with inflammatory diseases might be. We just presented a study at the European League Against Rheumatism meeting that showed that there's a 1.2-fold increased hazard ratio of postpartum depression among women with inflammatory arthritis compared to women without rheumatic disease. Um, So the risk of depression uh, is increased in patients with inflammatory disease. So atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, lymphoma, interstitial lung disease, uh, depression, uh, and then of course the comorbid conditions that are associated uh, with our diseases such as uh, spondyloarthritis is associated with inflammatory bowel disease or with uveitis or with psoriasis. So there are a number of comorbid conditions Most of them are shared pathophysiology and shared risk, but some of them are a result of chronic inflammation. Dr. Chen, what is the potential for these biosimilars to lower costs compared to this reference product? Oh yeah, no, there is definitely a lot of opportunity for just even just talk about the development. Uh, On average, a new medication will take at least minimally greater than 10 years on the development, costs over $2.6 billion. But for the biosimilars, actually takes approximately five to nine years and is only about $100 million. So you can even see the the cost comparison on developing the uh, drug itself. But uh, in 2020, uh, the research actually showed that the biosimilar have saved nearly $8 billion. And in 2022, uh, they have uh, actually projected saving of over $30 billion. And if we continue use the biosimilars, there's a potential uh, savings of $183 billion in the next five years. You know, it sounds like there's a great opportunity with biosimilars, leveraging almost like our partners have in Europe to really decrease cost of care and still provide high value. Dr. Kale, what are some of the opportunities that biosimilars have for inflammatory conditions, maybe from a provider's perspective? So biosimilars are really an exciting addition in terms of the adalimumab biosimilars, this year at least, um, in immune-mediated inflammatory diseases because the number one most important thing they're allowing us to do is get more drug into more patients' hands. You know, the fact that they are lower costs, and hopefully we're seeing that lower cost kind of translate into patient lower costs as well, it's just making the treatment class, the biologics, more accessible for patients. And this is a big deal because although we have a lot of different, you know, healthcare plans and different insurance formularies and managed care plans, it still is across the board 
or can be difficult to get the right drug into the right patient at the right time. Um, and the cost has always been a barrier for patients. And so the biggest thing that has been you know, really wonderful about biosimilars, and this started, of course, with the infliximab biosimilars years ago, and now, again, more recently with the adalimumab biosimilars, is that we're able to get the drug to the patient at the time that they need. So we were talking a little bit about step therapy before, and we're increasingly understanding that step therapy is not necessarily the right approach for many of our patients who are starting off with severe disease that can only progress to, you know, to increase in severity. And for these patients, you really need to start a biologic early on, and you don't necessarily want to waste time going through the different step up or step lateral <laughs> approach. You really just want to start the biologic up front. Um, and cost was a big you know, inhibitor of that. And now with the biosimilars and the lower cost they afford, we're able to start the right drug earlier for our patients and really prevent the disease severity kind of progressing along. You know, so many times, historically, it was getting the providers to understand the value of a biosimilar, but obviously our providers have really caught on to it and they understand the value it plays in treatment and they understand that it can reduce the cost for the patient if the plan has it that way. So maybe we pivot from the provider perspective to a payer. As a payer, Dr. Chen, what are your thoughts around biosimilars and how are they really changing the landscape in some of these high cost disease states? Yeah, as we have discussed earlier, you know, biosimilar, uh, the development of the drug is much uh, lower in comparison to biologics, but as well as uh, the medication itself, it is uh, much lower overall uh, in the cost itself, but also, um, Ideally is to do the interchangeability where, you know, we are able to switch uh, from uh, the somebody who are already on biologic into the biosimilar that could give us even more saving in the long run. It will uh, increase our market competitiveness and overall um, create more innovations and as well as uh, ho uh, hopefully cause saving in the long run. And I'm hopeful that that cost savings not only saves for the employer group, because I think that's so important as they continue to cover newer innovative treatments, but for the payers, but also hopefully that passes on to the patients as well, right? Because ultimately we want them to be able to afford and have access to these medications. So with those great opportunities that biosimilars provide, there's also challenges. And so Dr. K, I don't want to come to you for just challenges, but I feel like I'd love to hear your perspective of what are some of the challenges that you've experienced as a provider related to biosimilars and inflammatory conditions? So the biggest challenge is that the patient needs to share in the savings. A patient accepting a biosimilar, which is equivalent in effectiveness and comparable in safety, is not giving up anything. They're gaining treatment with an effective medication. But to make that change for the sake of saving the payer money or the pharmacy benefit manager money and not sharing in those cost savings really doesn't make sense. So the success of biosimilars is dependent upon including the patient in the economic advantage of biosimilars. In terms of challenges, uh, a patient who's doing well on a reference biologic medication when faced with the suggestion of changing to a biosimilar is going to ask why uh, I'm doing very well on the medication that I'm taking. What's in it for me? So education is incredibly important when initiating treatment with a biosimilar. And it's important to educate the patient initiating a reference product, but with a biosimilar to educate the patient that 
biosimilars have been studied extensively, developed very carefully, and shown to be equivalent in efficacy and comparable in safety and immunogenicity. Uh, with that education, if the other component of sharing in the financial savings benefits the patient, then we can be quite successful in using biosimilars in the United States. Yeah, I agree with Dr. K 100%. I think taking the time and spending it on education is imperative because I think especially with the injectable biosimilars, you know, it's difficult for patients to be cruising on the reference product injectable and then all of a sudden one month get a new package with new packaging, a new form of administration, um, especially with adalimumab, you know, adalimumab reference product is citrate free and patients really enjoy that because it doesn't cause burning or stinging when they inject, but some of the new adalimumab biosimilars might still have citrate and patients might not be aware. You know, one thing just to build off that with provider challenges is also many large practices and health systems have their own integrated specialty pharmacies that they can utilize for patient education, coordination through the EMR. How do we work with our payers if we're unable to fill internally as a provider to make sure that we've got good adherence data to have these patients be successful on product? I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, at UMass Memorial Medical Center, we have our own uh, internal specialty pharmacy, and we have pharmacy liaisons who help us with prior authorization, who interface with the patients. Uh, they follow up with the patient pharmacists, speak with the patient, address concerns, enhance compliance. Uh, but the problem is that a patient changes insurance and they're no longer able to use our internal specialty pharmacy. Unless all pharmacies were created equal, uh, there is a difference among pharmacies. And I would use this platform to advocate to payers that you be more liberal in supporting specialty pharmacies and allowing institutional specialty pharmacies to dispense these medications because so much of the direct involvement of the pharmacy liaison with the patient and with the provider is important in compliance and compliance to the payer is going to result in less in the way of comorbidities and consequences of inadequately treated disease. That's all we have for today. From all of us at AGMC, thank you for listening to this Managed Carecast. Please tune in to the next podcast in this series where we will discuss challenges with biosimilar uptake, interchangeability studies, patient and provider education, and more. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.